does it take for you to be sure? Nobody likes to admit they're wrong, particularly on any matter of real importance, though no matter how certain you are about something, in the background there's often that private calculation and the tiniest of doubt. In lots of cases, our decisions have minor impacts, deciding when you think you've made a wrong turn and have to double back, or maybe that shirt doesn't go with that jacket after all. Those are usually forgotten pretty quickly. For really major stuff, like deciding whether or not to accept the result of a scientific research project, you'd imagine that there was a much more structured and rigorous process to make those kinds of decisions. And you'd be right. Though the origin of one of the critical components of that process is a bit on the murky side, emerging decades ago in a surprisingly offhand manner, it was likely crystallized unintentionally by one of the founders of modern research methods, whose work and ideas you've probably never heard of, but who has had an effect on nearly every statistical study, and the way we understand the way we understand the world for almost a century document that changed the world statistical methods for research workers a book written by sir ronald aylmer fisher 1925 i'm joe janes of the university of washington information school ah yes statistics everybody's favoritest and most fascinating topic for those of you who haven't already run screaming for the doors, there's an important story here, and I'll spare you most of the gory numerical details. Ronald Fisher, by all accounts, was a man of great personal charm and a loyal friend, and also quick to anger, especially when he perceived error or misrepresentation in an argument, which led to famous feuds with other early statisticians. He was nearly blind from a young age, married in secret because his 16-year-old wife's family disapproved, and taught in public schools for a while, though, as one source puts it, neither he nor his pupils enjoyed the experience. His early work, typical for the emerging world of experimental design, was in agriculture, leading him to an interest in genetics and eventually eugenics, co-founding the Cambridge University Eugenics Society in 1911. So here's the basic idea. Let's say you wanted to find out whether people have better memory of things they read on paper or on a tablet. You recruit a bunch of people and have half of them read a chapter of a physical book and the other half read the same thing on an iPad. You then test their memories for facts in the chapter, and whichever group has the higher score gives you your answer. Simple, yes? Well, maybe. The higher score might indicate that people in general remembered better in one mode or the other. Or it might be that the people in one group happen to be better readers, or have better memories, or a natural preference or hatred of the format you gave them, or were just having a crummy day. How could you separate any real difference from these other kinds of factors? One way would be to randomly assign people to the two groups to mix all those things up. Okay, that's fine. So now you get to this question. How much higher would you want the scores for one of those groups to be to be sure that that difference was really because of the format and not just random chance? That question was very much on the minds of Fisher and his contemporaries. 
A number of ideas were swirling around as the field was coalescing using a variety of techniques and guidelines to try to identify what seemed to be the right level of certainty to be convinced that a result was real. Fisher's book wasn't intended to be a textbook, at least not in a classroom setting. It was meant rather to collect, popularize, and spread the considerable number of threads of work in statistics which had been developing in earnest for a few decades. It emerged in the same year as The New Yorker, The Great Gatsby, and Mein Kampf, The Scopes Trial, Art Deco, Mount Rushmore, and an August March of 40,000 Ku Klux Klan members down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington. Ultimately, this question was framed as how much likelihood, what probability of a result being wrong, random, we should be willing to live with. In the midst of much discussion about this, along comes Fisher, who seemingly tosses this off on page 79 of his book. In practice, we want to know whether or not the observed value is open to suspicion. We shall not often be astray if we draw a conventional line at .05. A year later, in another paper, he reinforces this personally the writer prefers to set a low standard of significance at the 5% point and ignore entirely all results which fail to reach this level. Okay, modern researchers would refer to this as a p-level of 0.05, a 5% probability that a research result doesn't indicate a real effect, but rather comes from some random source. If that all sounds a bit casual to be the lodestone of the means by which we decide what studies to believe and which ones we don't, you're not alone. There's no evidence that Fisher intended this dictum to be universal, definitive, or exclusive. Indeed, if you look a bit more deeply, he provides more context. The 1926 paper continues, A scientific fact should be regarded as experimentally established only if a properly designed experiment rarely fails to give this level of significance. Yet here we are. In the vast majority of settings, if you want a quantitatively based science or social science research study published, and you don't get a p-value of 0.05 or lower, it's an uphill battle. Moreover, many researchers won't even submit such results for publication, because who wants to be seen as a failure? Important consequences flow from all this. First of all, if you have a hard and fast rule, it's hard and fast. So a steady result that just makes it across the line, winding up with a p-value of 0.0499, gets to be called statistically significant. And one that fails just short with 0.0501 doesn't. You can appreciate the value of an easy and standard cutoff, but geez. Also, consider this. If each statistically significant result has a 5% chance of being spurious, then it follows that 5% of all the statistically significant results out there that have been published aren't real. They're due to random chance. I would hasten here to point out that studies in the medical and pharmaceutical fields often have considerably more stringent thresholds, 1% or even a tenth of a percent, because people's health and safety are involved. Still, 
This means that some small fraction of findings aren't really findings at all. Think of that 5% as the likelihood of a false positive on a test, or as one often hears in beginning stat classes, the likelihood of convicting an innocent person, beyond a reasonable doubt. We know these happen and we want to minimize those chances, and yet you don't want to require so much certainty that you wind up missing something potentially interesting. This balance, trade-off, between screening false positives and false negatives is very important to the research community, and the focus on p-values reveals how they feel about it. There's a firm line on false positives, and yet in many cases there's no calculation or even consideration of the probability of a false negative, of failing to see a real effect. The scholarly community wants to be sure that the results in the literature are credible, sometimes to the exclusion of results that might otherwise be found. It could, however, go the other way around. Today, some researchers are increasingly of the opinion that this significance level business is less important than a focus on how big an observed effect is. If people remembered things twice as well when reading from a book than an e-book, that might be worth paying attention to, rather than focusing on a smaller effect we're more sure about. That would give us a very different kind of scholarly record, more findings, less certainty, and would require a different way of reading and thinking about and navigating that literature, perhaps with a greater desire and necessity for replication and the accompanying effort and money and time that would require to be sure. Neither approach is inherently better, they're just different. You could even imagine combining the two somehow, factoring in the size of effects and certainty in some hybrid way. Well, is that possible? Could that happen? Getting to agreement on something like that would likely take more than just a line or two in a book these days, so it would appear that here, as in so many other cases, the only thing we can be truly certain of is maybe.